0: Welcome to the New Testament Review,
1: where every episode we review an influential piece of New Testament or early Christian scholarship.
0: I'm Laura Robinson.
1: And I'm Ian Mills. <laughs> Just kidding.
0: That is not... And
1: I'm Ben Shepherd.
0: I am a Duke PhD candidate. Ben is a UNC PhD candidate. PhD student, PhD still. student. Oh yeah, you haven't passed your exams yet. Nope. You guys have probably heard Ben's voice before on this show talking about Second century issues, uh, early Christianity, um, and recently martyrdom.
1: My co-host for the episode wasn't great. Whatever. (laughs) You work with what you've got.
0: Ben is joining me today to talk about a beloved piece of scholarship on early Christianity written by Judith Perkins. And this book is called The Suffering Self, Pain and Narrative Representation in the Early Christian Era. Uh, This book was published in 1995.
1: Yeah, uh, Judith Perkins is Professor of Classics and Humanities, Emerita, at St. Joseph College, Connecticut. Uh, In addition to this book, she's also written another work on uh, Roman identities in the Christian era. And she was a fellow at the Westar Institute, uh, known for, among other things, as the home of the Jesus Seminar, but they do do things besides dropping
0: Marbles. Rocks, marbles,
1: <laughs> and buckets. Apparently, um, so don't don't let that prejudice you against them.
0: I think that you can tell reading this book that Dr. Perkins is very much a classicist. That Absolutely. she seems very familiar with just an incredible range of classical literature and talking about possible cultural influences on Christianity. And this is what this book is all about: putting Christian. Ideology and discourse about the self and the body, uh, and pain, in conversation with what was happening in the larger world around it, with how Christianity was continuous and discontinuous, uh, with thinking of the self as a sufferer. Before we get started, I think review. I want to drop a quick content warning. Actually, um, we're gonna talk a lot about suicide today, and I, you know, I don't. We don't know who's listening, but if that's gonna bother anybody, this is something that you know maybe you don't have sprung on you.
1: Good call. The way Laura and I encountered this book was taking an apostolic father's seminar Mm -hmm. at UNC. Mm -hmm. Laura did a cool thing. She came all the way down to the trashy public school in Chapel Hill. (laughs) Uh, And she and Ian and I all took a seminar with uh, one of the professors at UNC who teaches New Testament early Christianity. We read a lot of really key books in the field. Coming back to this together was actually really fun, um, just seeing how, like, our perspectives have changed.
0: Absolutely. So, um, in the last episode where we talked about martyrdom, we were examining it very much from sort of a historical perspective. Um, where we talked a lot about just like the practical realities behind persecution and how and why Christians might have been victimized by the Roman government for their beliefs. Uh, if you want to listen to that episode, that was our uh, Saint Croix episode. And what Perkins is going to lead us into is more of a discussion of the ideology of, you know, not not how. Rome Romans saw the Christians and why to persecute them, but how Christians saw themselves not just while being persecuted, but while suffering more generally. How did Christians conceive of themselves as suffering people and why this matters?
1: The big point that Perkins wants to argue in this book is that ancient Mediterranean culture in the second and third centuries was developing a subjectivity that defined the body through suffering and Christianity was part of this, and this also, this wider cultural trend paved the way for Christianity to take advantage of it because its message inherently appealed to those who are poor or sick or suffering in some way. Perkins is a big fan of using this term subjectivity. Uh, If you haven't read a ton of Foucault, Maybe you haven't encountered this before. I actually hadn't encountered this particular terminology before I read this book. Basically, you know, if we talk about subjectivity or the self, uh, we're talking about a discourse about or a representation of the concept of the self in a generic
0: sense. What Perkins is focusing on here is the way that people talk about and think about themselves and others as selves. Perkins is not saying that Christians, like, Caused sufferers to come about, or like were the first people to notice sufferers. What we're talking about is the phenomenon of a category of people in their communication with one another and in their own reflection, think of themselves and people. And that, that's what Perkins is focusing on.
1: At the most basic level, what we're talking about here is just the idea that it can be difficult sometimes to think about things. Um, if they're not brought to your attention on a regular right. basis, yeah, and this is her point that that suffering was n- not brought to people's attentions on a regular basis as something that is constitutive of who they are as their self, mm-hmm. right? you know, and so this is part of a a larger trend that Christianity again is just part of uh that Christianity is moving with and happens, you know by a sort of happy accident to be able to take advantage of, where people are starting to really notice and really bring attention to. It might seem obvious on the face to us that people who ourselves, who are subjects, suffer, but Perkins actually wants to argue that this is not necessarily the case. She says, Suffering may be everywhere, but if it is not brought to cultural consciousness, in effect, it has no existence. That is, there is no knowledge of it. And when she says this, she's saying knowledge in a bit more uh, kind of macro sense, uh, on, a, on a cultural level, right? So according to Perkins, um, ancient Mediterranean society wasn't concerned in the classical or Hellenistic periods. It wasn't really concerned with dwelling on bodily suffering. Uh, it wasn't something people talked about a lot in kind of popular discourse, they didn't write about it a lot, uh, but in the second and third centuries, this began to change, and Christianity was part of this.
0: Yeah, you know, it's been a while since I visited these texts, but th- it did make me think back on things like the Iliad. With Of all the presentations of injury in it, destruction of human bodies in the Iliad, there really isn't much talk of suffering or um, or the experience of being injured, you know? Like, that's not really a category in a lot of classical literature you know is, right. am i am i wrong about this i, think, I
1: don't I don't think so i mean i think this yeah. is generally speaking this is the case in the literature of the ancient meds so what perkins is trying to argue is not that like people didn't suffer or they sure. didn't think about their own suffering but rather this didn't seem to be constitutive of who they are they didn't seem to think of themselves in terms of suffering Well, people didn't
0: organize around the idea of suffering or identify as suffering. Uh, And this is a huge change.
1: Maybe, I mean, maybe something that we could put in parallel to this is to talk about, like, being a consumer, right? Like, people, Mm -hmm. you know, from time immemorial, back to, you know, barter systems or what have you, have been consuming goods. They've been buying, purchasing, trading goods from other people and consuming them. But nowadays, you have people actively, like talking about themselves or being talked about as consumers, right? So there's this idea of something about a self or an individual is constituted by their consumption. People have always consumed, but this is not something that has been universal through all the yeah. time that people are thought of or consider of themselves as consumers, right? So again, it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a fine distinction, but I think it is important that there are these shifts in how people talk and think about themselves, whether it's as sufferers or consumers or workers or what have you. It's
0: really good, yeah. Once you have a popular discourse of people thinking of themselves as sufferers or thinking of themselves as, you know, in pain, groups of people who are identifying this way and thinking this way and talking about it, you know, you can have leadership structures and ideological structures that get built on the top of that. One that Peter Brown talks about is the phenomenon of like fourth century bishops struggling to be recognized as lovers of the poor. The class of people who are called the poor and people who are identified as being helpless and sick eventually gains social currency, not just for this to be a group of people who exist, but for you to posture yourself as a kind of person who is specifically concerned about them. And that's not a thing that really exists before the Christian ecclesiastical structure shows up. So... In, in order for that part to happen, in order to have bishops who gain power and gain influence through being lovers of the poor, you have to have a society where people are ready to think of themselves as the poor or to think of other people as the poor. Like That has to be a, a like a taxonomy that exists. So Perkins says that Christianity formed around the subjectivity of sufferer, not only conceptually but also actively, collecting funds, acquiring power, administering hospitals and poorhouses to succor various categories of sufferers. How did Christianity create a category of sufferers that you can identify as people you're concerned with? And how did Christians come to think about themselves as sufferers?
1: She wavers between saying outright that Christianity had an active hand in creating this category of right. the self as a sufferer for later periods of church history. When she she talks a bit more about like the saints uh, and the, and the cult of the saints, and that's something we won't get into today, just because it it's a bit beyond our uh, particular interest and expertise. But. At that point, she's willing to say that maybe Christianity is kind of, as a whole, is actively involved in producing this kind of discourse. Uh, But for the most part, what she's going to say is that this is a larger trend in society. And she's going to go to a bunch of other sources from around the ancient world at this time to show that Christianity is one part of a larger movement in terms of creating this uh, sense of self as a sufferer. And then Christianity happened to benefit because its message, according to her, is inherently beneficial for people who are suffering, it happened to benefit from this larger cultural movement. So part of the reason that Christianity uh, began to grow and flourish, not just these in terms of these ideas of suffering, but actually helping out people who are suffering, is because of this larger cultural movement. One of the cardinal examples of this that she provides is a speech that was given by Aurelius Aristides. He's a professional rhetor, he's talking, uh, and during his speech, you know, he goes into this really graphic depiction of uh, the sickness that he had, like, you know, he twisted his ankle, uh, and so he he talks like, you know, and and it's not extended, but just the graphicness of his description of hurting himself and how sick he was afterwards. Perkins points out that this is something that, happening in the second century, that you really wouldn't see prior to this point. You wouldn't see professional orators or sophists talking about, like, their bodily functions and ailments, right? You can read some of the correspondence between Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, and one of his friends, and they talk about, like, their bodily ailments on, like, a regular basis. And it seems to be a way of, like, endearing themselves to each other. Yeah. And you don't see this kind of talk, this very blatant Uh, explicit talk about, like, bodily pain and suffering in previous eras, right? So this is what she's doing, is identifying a kind of cultural moment and putting Christian texts that talk about explicit suffering alongside of all kinds of other texts, texts from Galen, texts that talk about the the cult of Asclepius, which was very active at this time, people talking very openly about their ailments and what they want from this god who gives healing, Putting all these things together and saying this is a cultural trend, people are drawing attention to their suffering in new and different ways, and Christianity is part of this.
0: So where Perkins lays a lot of the groundwork for comparison with the Greco-Roman world is in two emerging genres of literature that were showing up at the time that a lot of this, that Christian literature started to show up. The first is romances, Greco-Roman romance novels, and in Stoic literature, both of these bodies of works are characterized by uh suffering a lot you know basically you have these two incredibly beautiful people yep. who they meet uh they're they vir- fall in love yeah she's a virgin mm-hmm. and then they're tragically separated mm-hmm. and insane stuff happens to them you know they get whisked all over the, gro- the world they end up in you know sold to other people who want them for their beauty, they become slaves, they face forced
1: marriages to other people, yeah, they forced have marriages. kids,
0: yeah, execution, risk of execution, torture, they think
1: about suicide, right? They, That's do. they contemplate they do, yeah. because they're so upset about being separated from
0: the person yeah. that they
1: saw for five minutes on the street,
0: yeah, no, exactly that person they really love and they want to be with. Um, it, all of this stuff, you know, they, they, this insane series of events will happen during the t- course of their separation and then at the end the happy ending is that they are reunited with each other and the big payoff of their moment of reuniting is always some kind of an affirmation that in the midst of all of these trials and horrible things they went through they remained chaste and a lot of times chastity's not what we think of chastity. A lot of times, like, it doesn't mean, well, yeah, this is something she talks about. It's not always that they didn't have sex with anybody else. In fact, sometimes they do. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it's not even that they didn't always consent to forced marriages they might be in. The chastity that they emphasize is primarily a mental one. Um, So at the end of Clearly, the characters affirm that the whole time that they were out there suffering, they never found anybody else attractive. They were never in love with anybody else. They never looked at anybody else. That whatever was happening to their bodies or whatever was happening to them on the road, in their hearts, the only person they ever loved was this person they saw at the beginning of the book. Um, So this sets up this sort of like narrative ideal of a person who, despite what they suffer, Internally, their essential self remains unchanged, and this is kind of the ideal of Stoicism. uh, When you have like the writings of Seneca and Epictetus, that the Stoics aren't naive; they know that horrible things happen to you in this life. That all kinds, you know, you can lose your family, you can lose your children, you can lose your house. That all of these things might happen, but the essential thing for a Stoic is that you don't really let it affect your internal tranquility. Even with emotions like pity or empathy, you know, that you can behave with charity towards other people and you can treat other people kindly, but you should never be sad about what they're going through. You know, there's an essential self that doesn't become affected.
1: Yeah, so the connection here between Stoicism on one hand and these uh, Greek romance novels on the other, which, you know, probably on some cultural level overlap in terms of how they are conceiving of, you know, the self and the passions. They don't deny the suffering, and in fact, they emphasize the suffering. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the people who make up the heroes and heroines of these Greek romance novels are those who have suffered repeatedly, over and over, like to a ridiculous degree. And so, there's this idea that you're bringing attention to all the suffering that you're experiencing, but you are, uh, you're overcoming it. Mentally, right? You are dealing with it in a way that it doesn't matter. It's, it's without effect. You are suffering, but it doesn't change the real core internal you. Ideally, you have the ability to kind of transcend this suffering even as you're experiencing it.
0: This probably all is starting to sound a little bit like martyr literature. A lot of times in martyr literature, you do have this phenomenon of people who are just endlessly going through these horrible things, and they remain completely fixated on God from the very beginning of it. They remain fixated on Christ. They are rejoicing uh, with what's happening around them. In, in martyr literature, it's this idea that there there is still this essential self of you. It's the part of you that is, you know, in communion with Jesus, usually, uh, in, in the moment of suffering, that can't be broken down by this, that won't be swayed by uh, magistrates or threats or anything, that, you know, this part of you that remains, you know, not just steadfast, but particularly, like, in, in close contact with God, in, in, like, exceptionally close contact with God in the act of suffering. The primary difference between Christian literature and these romance and Stoic ca- uh, texts is not the way that they see suffering and the importance of like your constancy and your attitude during it, but in the way that they end. Romances and Stoic literature are trying to produce subjects that blend in very well with society, that people who take their rightful place in the social world. So the end of romances... The the happy ending of the story is always getting married, you know, that the couple finds each other again, they affirm their chastity, they stayed exactly the same the entire time, no matter what happened, and then they're married and they have kids, and, you know, they assume their place is good, upper-class youngins. So, and and, and Stoics are very much the same way, that, like, the goal is to produce people who are... who have, like, exceptional wisdom and can, you know, be good leaders and exist in the civic realm. Christianity is the exact opposite. Christian literature is unbelievably antisocial in comparison to these things. In fact, things like getting married and participating in civic life and having children, those are the things that you're actually trying to avoid in uh, in your steadfastness. The happy ending in Christian literature is that you die.
1: There is a a strand of, of Christianity that is present in these martyr texts that is present in works like uh, the apocryphal Acts, right, the Acts of mm-hmm. Paul and Thecla, right, where the goal is to be chaste or even to to die and kind of abandon the world around you. Um, Perpetua, you know, one of our most famous martyrs, she has a child when she goes to prison, and she, you know, part of the story revolves around her basically abandoning her child and saying, like, you know, go stay with my family. And her parents and her family are trying, are begging her to stay alive for the sake of her child. And she's saying, no, I have to die. So there is at least one element in early Christianity that sim- seemed to have been at least fairly prominent that was very focused on this kind of anti social, anti family agenda. And saying, saying anti family is even. Maybe a little weak. I mean, maybe this is really kind of a rejection of society as a whole if you think of marriage as the fundamental building block of society, which is not necessarily true, but it's the way people think about it. And so the rejection of that is really a rejection of the social world as a whole.
0: I want to read a quick quote from Thomas when he is encouraging uh, fidelity to martyrdom and why you shouldn't have kids. It's from
1: the Acts of Thomas? Uh, It's from
0: the Acts of Thomas, yeah. yeah. For the majority of children become unprofitable, possessed by demons, lunatic, or half-withered, or crippled, or deaf or dumb, or paralytic or stupid. Even if they are healthy, again, they will be unserviceable, performing useless and abominable deeds. So that's why Thomas thinks you shouldn't have kids. Um, Like going for a PhD
1: in religious studies. uh, Yeah. Perkins' argument about the martyrs specifically, right? So you have these two versions of a happy ending, right? You have the happy ending as marriage and integration into society. You have happy ending as death, right? So either way, you're suffering, but the way that this is resolved, there's two endings, marriage or death. And what Perkins wants to argue is that the reason that this can be seen as a positive for the early Christians is because for them, the experience of suffering is powerful. It gives them a certain power. Uh, I think we've talked uh, before, at least mentioned in our previous martyrdom episode. We can talk more today potentially, uh, but you know about how Christianity was known for and recognized for. Uh, martyrdom and how people outside of Christianity recognize martyrdom as power and it seems like the people who were actually experiencing persecution who uh, experienced martyrdom at least some of them experienced a form of power experienced a form of being able to set the terms for their lives right so rather than the social structures of the world or the, the political structures of the world defining who they are martyrdom and suffering actually gives them an opportunity to define who they are it gives them power over their own self-concept and how the world sees them and for Perkins this is kind of this is what suffering does for Christians Perkins would go a bit farther and say that this is the way that early Christians kind of have power over the Roman Empire (laughs) which I and I think also Laura would be very skeptical of some arguments that make too much of the fact that, like, Christians yeah. subversively and counterculturally take power over the Roman Empire through their suffering. I think that might be going too far.
0: I mean, a lot of this is very dependent on you know, understanding, like, the Christian's understanding of there being a god who is sort of opposed to this imperial system who is on their side and not the Romans and will judge the Romans eventually. Um, So I don't want to make too much of the countercultural side of this.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I do think there is something to be said here about defining yourself and controlling your own self-presentation and perception, but I think that's, you know, I think people want to chalk this up to something that's more like kind of nakedly political and say like, Oh yeah, they're sticking it to the Romans. No, the Romans were literally sticking it to them. (laughs) They were dying. But there is, I do think there is something to, you know, having the power to reject social structure, to reject your family, to reject potential marriage Mm -hmm. partners. I think at a fundamental level, it is anti-social, anti-society as a whole. Um, that I don't think these martyrs necessarily had power over society, but they certainly had power over themselves, that in ways in which most people didn't, I think. People who were being forced into marriage or expected to be married or had to be married in order to survive in society, in that sense, yeah, they were gaining a certain power over themselves, a certain amount of self-determination. And if suffering had to be the avenue for that, then for these martyrs, it seems like that was worth it yeah. for
0: them. Well, and, and when Perkins gets into the issue of like healing and the presentation of healing in the martyr acts, you, you know, there's an extent to which this sort of discourse of Christians as sufferers and in uh, being a community of sufferers who, who are dependent on a God and His agents who are very specifically interested in the suffering of people and acts of healing and something, I think that uh, where this is where Christianity actually can start meeting some felt needs, and the ideology can become quite powerful. If you have a, a world in where in which people are thinking of themselves as sufferers and thinking of themselves as in need of healing, and Christianity comes along uh, proclaiming this Messiah who is characterized by healing, and whose agents are characterized by healing in virtually all the acts of the apostles, I, I think it, it makes Christianity probably more attractive than it would have been 600 years ago, uh, before you really have this narrative Occurring, this is something that Perkins gets into that. Um, Christianity is so, is showing up and meeting a need that had kind of preceded it in a lot of ways, and um, appealing to a kind of person who might not have really existed before this. One thing that makes this book a little hard to walk through the way we've worked, we've walked through a lot of articles in the show, is that Perkins is dealing with a lot of different facets of this phenomenon of uh, like the suffering self in discourse, is you know, she starts out very much interested in this question of how is Christianity really breaking with the norms of what's around it? That, yeah, everyone is talking about suffering and the way to respond to suffering, but Christianity is pushing it in this very uh, novel direction by making this the suffering self specifically a very antisocial self a person who is not conforming to social expectations of what the good life is and not conforming to what the social world around them expects of them and then she pushes this all a bit more to the macro level of how what happens when you have groups of people operating in a society who are questioning a lot of what had really been given, questioning the, the, the logic of existing within societies and of existing within families. And I think that's where Perkins really wants to find something really countercultural here. The idea that the suffering self really allows people to be subversive, the murder is able to undercut family structures in a lot of way and resist uh, the authority of fathers and the the love of children. When you get into these healing narratives, a lot of times when you have these these clusters of impoverished people looking to a central figure who will you know who can resurrect the dead and raise up the impoverished. You know, it grants power to the suffering figure, and it really didn't exist before. Perkins sees something quite revolutionary in in the way that healing narratives are constructed.
1: One good contrast to do, and maybe this will be a book that we will look at at another time. Um, but she she explicitly draws in an ancient historian who's written on early Christianity, Ramsey M. Mullen. Mm-hmm. And he has a book called Christianizing the Roman Empire. And I think that's a fantastic book. It's a it's a great text. But I do think inherent in that book, not, not necessarily wrongly, but inherent in a lot of the study of early Christianity, there's this question about, like, what makes Christianity different? Because we do have this very notable change. The empire very drastically and rapidly shifts its orientation in terms of uh, religion and society from the basic model of religion that had pr- been prominent. Uh, in the ancient Mediterranean for thousands of years to something that is very different, right? So you, you see a change, right? And so I think for me, starting off as a scholar, um, not so much now, but at least for me starting off, I think a lot of people still, the question fundamentally is, so what's different about <laughs> Christianity? Yeah, totally. Like how did Christianity change something that was already there? Like so something exists, the The uh, ancient Mediterranean religious system is there, it exists and it's more or less static, and Christianity comes along and changes it, right? And what Perkins does, I think, in a really interesting way that a lot of people miss is she posits fundamentally that this religious system wasn't static, that it was changing. And maybe when we think about the rise of Christianity and the way that Christianity, uh, I mean, it didn't take over everyone in the Roman Empire by the year 300, but it did reach this kind of cultural ascendancy This was not because it was just because Christianity had something new or innovative. It it did, but that's not the only reason. Actually, society was changing at the same time. And so Christianity actually benefited from an actual change in the cultural and social makeup of society at the time that it happened to be kind of in the right place at the right time to take advantage of this move, right? So it's not, the question is not, you know, how did Christianity change the Greco-Roman world, but rather how did Christianity Change alongside the greco Roman world, and were there other things that were changing at the same time that gave Christianity kind of a, a pride of place or like a great position to take advantage of those changes right and It takes the question of christianity 's success a, a bit away from this kind of teleological perspective of like well you know this is something inherent and essential this is this is what 's essential to Christianity that made it succeed, which I think is in the background of a lot of Christian or not, right? Like, people who are writing about early Christianity, that's what they want to talk about, is they want to talk about what's special to Christianity. Less of that and more of what was going on at the time that made it possible for something like Christianity to achieve the place that it did. And so I think Perkins' book does a fantastic job of laying out a potential answer to that question. And I think it's it's a really good answer. Even that alone, that attempt really separates it from the pack from a lot of studies on early Christianity yeah. in the way that it, it really deals with all kinds of different sources from Galen to Alias Aristides to these Greek romances is bringing in all these other sources to show no society is changing alongside Christianity and there are multiple factors at play.
0: Of all the books that we've read I think that there's something about just taking the bird's eye view of this book and just knowing the summary of it, that you really do miss something about Perkins' presentation style by just knowing that much about the book. Because Perkins really does let the sources drive the work. And she's not really... I think a lot of times... um, comparative work on in christianity especially i think can be a bit guilty of sort of doing the sort of like plucking from a bunch of different sources and making them add up to something that you're either contrasting or comparing with christianity and um and Perkins doesn't really do that. She gives a lot of context for all the sources she brings in, like trying to help us understand where this is happening in history and what they're responding to and why they might be saying what they're saying. And it's hard to reproduce that side of the book in a podcast.
1: You know, Laura and I picked this book book because we really appreciate, not necessarily the conclusions, which we, do, we don't both agree with everything that she claims in yeah. this book, But as scholars, like, it is really, really cool to see someone do what she does. To have the theoretical sophistication to talk about subjectivities and discourses, and then to also have the kind of the scholarly rigor to go into a bunch of ancient texts, stuff that, you know, most scholars of early Christianity are not actually really qualified to do kind of the work that she does here. And she's, I mean, her background in classics really shows here because she goes deep into sources and really draws stuff out of them. Not on a surface level where she's just picking through, uh, you know, a few choice quotes, but she's really digging deep into these texts. And so for me as a scholar, I think for Laura too, like what she pulls off in this book is just incredible. And I think you can... The way it's set up, essentially, is she gives you her her basic theory, and then every chapter is a case study. So if you mm-hmm. wanted to, you know, pick up the chapter on Galen, which we don't have time to talk about, but with, which I think is fascinating, mm-hmm. and how Galen is talking about bodies as things that can be interrogated, right, through through the physician's technique. Each individual chapter gives you a different kind of window that's re- that really goes in depth, and you really see world of ancient Christianity coming out rather than just being kind of background, right? You know, New Testament backgrounds, early Christian yeah. backgrounds. That's yeah. not what is going on here. This is a text that really firmly situates Christianity in its cultural context. It does a fantastic job. I don't think this format is ideal for this book. I think, I guess what we wanted to do for you guys was kind of draw your attention to this, uh, draw your attention to kind of the moves that Perkins makes in this book that are very important. They're, I mean, they're very heavily influential for me as a scholar. I don't know about Laura, yeah, absolutely.
0: but absolutely. So, um, Ben, oh my gosh, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having uh, me okay. back. Yeah, I really, really, really enjoy my time here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely.
1: Well, turning into Ben the second century guy, yeah. which I'm totally okay with. <laughs> well,
0: we need a second century
1: guy. Yeah, hopefully okay, so. my Marcion episode will be out by the time uh, yeah. this airs. Sorry, Ian. Please stop please leave us a review, either commensurate with the quality of your listening experience or exercising the sort of grace of which you hope to be the recipient. You can write to us at New Testament Review at gmail.com or find us at Twitter at newt, E W T
0: review. Yeah, do you have anything you want to
1: add to that? Sorry. <laughs> I spent, like, the last three minutes in my head trying to think of a joke about,
0: like, Instead of Fifty Shades of Grey, they had, like, Fifty Shades of Wine Dark...